This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 4. Welcome to Europe. The Isle of Lampedusa is the most southerly outpost of Italy closer to the coastline of North Africa than it is to, the, to that of Sicily, the main ferry from Lampedusa to Sicily takes nine hours. When you are on Lampedusa, you can feel this type of isolation. The eight dry square miles of rock have a landscape far more like that of Tunisia or Libya than that of Italy. Over the centuries, it has been the kind of history you might expect of an unprepossessing but useful post in the Mediterranean. It has changed hands repeatedly, and its recorded history is one of constant depopulation and repopulation. Pirate raids were a problem throughout, notably in the 16th century, when pirates from Turkey seized a thousand of the island's inhabitants and took them off into slavery. An English visitor in the 18th century found only one inhabitant. The princes of Lampedusa who, even after the gift of their title, were sensible enough to stay in their places on Sicily, encouraged the island's repopulation. Today, if the island's name rings any bells apart from it for its recent miseries, it is one for one holder of this title in particular. The author of The Leopard was the last of the line of princes of that name. But there is nothing of him or his world on the island that shares his name. The decaying grandeur of a Sicilian Baroque feels as many miles away as it is from this dusty outcrop of plain, low-built houses. These days, the island is inhabited by about 5,000 people, mainly centered about the sole port. There is one main street of shops, the Via Roma, which leads to the harbor, and the island's youth hang around here in packs or speed about the town's few streets, two to a scooter. Old women group together on benches around the town square in front of the church. The men constantly greet each other as though they haven't met for years. It is the sort of place through which any ambiguous young Italian would do practically anything to escape. Yet every day thousands of people risk their lives trying to get here. Of course, people have fled North Africa for years, and as the island's graveyard attests, it is not only in the last few years that the journey has proved fatal. Buried alongside the locals in the cemetery are some of those who set out for Lampedusa and whose journey ended in the sea. Migrante non identificato, Chi Raposa, says one of the grave markers put down by the local government, 29th of September, 2000. During the 2000s, boatloads of migrants regularly arrived on Lampedusa, bringing people not only from North and Sub-Saharan Africa, but from the Middle and Far East. People smugglers charged high rates for the journey by boat, but desperate individuals paid their prices for the short crossing. With the journey, time of less than a day, however badly propelled the boat, it became known as one of the best routes to a new life. Once on to Lampedusa, you are in Italy, and once into Italy, you are into Europe. It is a strange first glimpse of how of it is a strange first glimpse to get of the continent. Those whose boats came up on the shoreline see little to distinguish their point of arrival from the place they have just left. Those who sail into the south-facing harbor find a small port lined with a few quiet shops and cafes meant to cater for the Italian tourists who used to come here for the holiday. Fishing remains the island's main business, 
and on a tall column over the harbor stands a statue of the Madonna and Child, watching over the ships as they go in and out of the port. During the 2000s, the local authorities began to get concerned by the number of arrivals coming from North Africa and were forced to build a holding center for them. The original center was designed to hold up to 350 people, the idea being that the migrants would be processed quickly and then moved on up by boat into Sicily or mainland Italy, where their claims for asylum could be reassessed. But the new center swiftly proved inadequate for the task because of the numbers which started arriving. At 500, the center is overcrowded. At points in the 2000s, there were as many as two people at, or 2,000 people at a time, and the migrant center spilled out all around into a tent city. At such moments, local resentment risked becoming a problem. Throughout this time, and cash-strapped though the country was, Italy carried the financial and human burden of this process almost unaided. Unsurprisingly, the government also improvised. During what would be the last decade of Colonel Gaddafi's rule in Libya, the Italians entered into a covert agreement with his regime to return those Africans who had no right to remain and had to be deported from Italy. When the details of this arrangement emerged, Italy was roundly criticized by other European countries. But the country was only experiencing the sort of concerns and compromises that everybody else in Europe would encounter next. Soon, in a pattern that would become familiar to everyone else, if it hadn't been before, almost everyone who arrived on Lampedusa stayed in Italy. Even when their asylum claims were processed and turned down, appeals lodged and also turned down, and deportation issues or orders issued, they still stayed. The numbers coming in were too great, and the whole process was already far too costly for the additional costs of often forcible repatriation to be added in. At some point, whether as an official nod or as part of an unofficial acceptance of the inevitable, it was deemed not just too economically costly, but too diplomatically costly to return people to where they came from. It was easier to let them dissolve into the country, perhaps to try to move around into the rest of Europe if they could, or if not, to stay in Italy and find a way to live. Some would find a path to citizenship. Most would enter the country's or the continent's black economy, often working at rates not much above those they would get back home, and often for gangs from their own country that constituted their sole network in Europe. While the rest of Italy hoped the problem would melt into the length of the country, the holding center on Lampedusa, just behind the harbor's center, was regularly overflowing and had to come up with answers. At times, the situation became dangerous. There were fights and riots among residents, often sparked by inter-ethnicity rivals or rivalries. The migrant center was meant to be a holding center, but migrants began to wander around the town. When the authorities tried to keep people from going out the main entrance, some of the migrants made a hole in the fence at the back. This doesn't sound like a holding center. Center is not a prison. Migrants are not prisoners, obviously. The question of precisely what they were and their precise status took on an improvised air. Increasingly, the migrants knew what their rights were, but the Italian authorities could, could not do to them. Okay. It was, it was natural that the locals, who had in the main been extraordinarily understanding and sympathetic to the new arrivals, occasionally became unnerved by the numbers. At a high flow, the number of people arriving in a few days could easily outnumber the natives. And though the local shopkeepers sold their limited wares to the latest arrivals and sometimes gave them gifts, the authorities knew they had to become better at processing people. 
In particular, they had to move them off the island faster and get them onto boats up to Sicily and the mainland faster than they were managing currently. This was Lampedusa during the relative trickle of the 2000s. From 2011, after the, event, after the events which became known as the Arab Spring, this trickle became a flood. In part, this was because of the number of people fleeing changes of government and civil unrest. In part, it was because of the crumbling of the shady agreements with the old dictators that had limited some of the activities of the people traffickers. From 2011 onwards, hundreds and sometimes thousands of people were arriving in Lampedusa day and night. They came on rickety wooden boats, old fishing vessels from North Africa, purchased or stolen by the smugglers who would take their, make their clients pay the fare, however unseaworthy the vessel. Soon the question of what to do with all these boats became an issue on Lampedusa. Unable to find any further use for these wrecks, the local authorities piled them up behind the harbor front and at other places on the island, great graveyards of wretched vessels. At intervals, when the numbers got too great, the boats were heaped up together and burned. That first year of the Arab Spring was an especially bad time for the island. As 500 people were lined up to be ferried off Lampedusa, a thousand more would arrive. From 2011 onwards, the migrant center was often bursting with between 1 and 2,000 people. Mind you, it was built for 350. And of course, not all of those who set out managed to arrive in the increasingly inadequate vessels that the smugglers dispatched. On the island itself, the authorities created more burial spots for the dead bodies that came in, identifying those they could and burying those they could not, with a cross and an identity number that was given to the body on arrival. The reply when asked, where are the others? A local replied, the sea has most. At the outset of the Syrian civil war, many of the arrivals were Syrian, including the richer middle-class Syrians. One day, a yacht of well-dressed Syrians arrived into Lampedusa Harbor and walked ashore to be processed in the normal way. But after 2011, the Syrians who came were the poorer ones and their numbers also declined. Those who came that way told of a route through Egypt that involved extensive tunnel systems where the children needed oxygen masks. Different ethnic groups came through different routes, but they also had different expectations and different wishes. Most expressed a desire to stay in Italy. Only the Eritreans did not, perhaps because of memories of their former colonial times. They alone always expressed a desire to head on north into the rest of Europe. As some observers noted from the outset, the demographics of the migration were suggested in themselves. Perhaps 80% of the people coming in were young men. There were also children, including unaccompanied minors, who caused the most concern for the waiting authorities. Nigerian children who were alone were often being sent into Europe to be trafficked. There were occasional women, generally promised work, once in Europe. Met by their smugglers' contacts in Italy or further north who would lend them money and to whom they would then be indebted. Only at this stage did they find out that the job they had been promised was prostitution. Most people know how dangerous the journey is for any unaccompanied woman. It is rare for Muslim women or girls to come alone. Once they arrive on Lampedusa, the behavior of migrants also varies wildly. Those with money go shopping on the Via Roma. The Syrians are known for buying clothes when they arrive. Some migrants buy alcohol. Many immediately purchase phone cards and use them to call home and tell their family that they have arrived and to make arrangements with whatever contacts they have for the next phase of their journey. Hmm, practical. One day, I met three young Eritreans in the street 
no older than 16. They had just bought and were proudly wearing souvenir hats from the island bearing the legend, I love Lampedusa. Elsewhere, in the church square, eight young sub-Saharan boys seemed to be following instructions from an older migrant. They did not blend in. Among the small packs of migrants who roam through the town, some make an effort to wave or nod at locals. Others slope along the streets, glaring and already seeming resentful. The overwhelming predominance of young men is noticeable at times. They have come here on behalf of their families. In time, they hope to send money back to them. Most of all, they hope that they will be able to bring their families to join them. By 2013, the flow was so great that the government took the unusual step of flying recent arrivals off the island and onto Sicily or the mainland. That July, Pope Francis visited Lampedusa to an ecstatic local reaction. He threw a wreath into the sea and presided over an open-air mass during which he used a small painted boat as an altar. The Pope used the visit to condemn the global indifference to what was going on and urge the world to a reawakening of consciousness. For the inhabitants, it finally seemed some appropriate recognition of what was actually happening on their island. Then, on the 3rd of October 2013, a boat that had set out from Mistrada, Libya, mainly filled with sub-Saharan Africans, sank off the coast of Lampedusa. The Italian Coast Guard saved more than 100 people, but over 300 migrants still drowned. There was a huge outcry. A day of public mourning was announced in Italy, with flags flown at half-mast and a minute silence observed in all Italian schools. On Lampedusa, a silent candlelit procession and evening mass were attended by most of the residents of the island. So many bodies were brought in that a hangar at, at Lampedusa's tiny airport had to be turned into a temporary mortuary. A political outcry also ensued, not just in Italy but around the world. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Ben Ki-moon, or Ban Ki-moon, said that the tragedy proved the need for more channels for safe and orderly migration. Further sinkings the same month, with the loss of dozens of lives, drew increasingly strong reactions. While calling, whilst calling for more European aid, the Prime Minister of nearby Malta complained that the Mediterranean was becoming a cemetery. Finally, international attention began to be paid to what was happening on the seas around Lampedusa. As a direct response, the Italian government, with some wider uh, support, launched Mare Nostrum, or Our Sea. The Mare Nostrum policy allowed the Italian Navy to patrol almost 70,000 square kilometers of water off Lampedusa and operate search and rescue missions for migrant ships. Navy frigates and helicopters were backed up with coastal radar networks at a cost to the Italian government of around 9 million euros a month. NGOs cooperated with the policy and arranged to be on board the government vessels to assist when migrant vessels were intercepted. The policy undoubtedly saved many lives, but it also created new problems. Among these was the fact that the people smugglers operating from the lawless zones of the Libyan coastline now no longer had to try to use vessels, even as able as those they had been putting out to date. Mare Nostrum had brought the border of Europe even closer to Libya. All that the smugglers now had to do was launch any boat into the water. If it happened to stay afloat, the Italian Navy would meet it halfway to Lampedusa or sometimes even closer to Libya. If the migrant vessel was seaworthy, the Italian Navy would tow it into port at Lampedusa. Normally, the migrants would first be brought aboard the Italian vessels. This operation, which lasted under a year, was applauded by the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, 
among other international bodies, which later estimated that during this period, Italian vessels brought around 150,000 people into Europe. The IOM repeated the official line that the operation did not encourage more people to come. Nevertheless, with the numbers so substantial and no end in sight, the cost of Mare Nostrum soon proved too much for an Italian state still staggering through the various Eurozone crises. And so, after a year during which officials had sought to help but been given hardly any, the job of Mare Nostrum was turned over to the EU's Frontex Border Agency under the title Operation Triton. This, too, sought out boats crossing from North Africa and either assisted the migrants onto the Frontex vessels or guided their boats into harbor at Lampedusa or Sicilian ports, such as Augusta, toward which many boats were also heading. Throughout the period, Frontex and other officials also continued to deny the operation was causing any pull factor. Yet how could it not? On one side of the Mediterranean were people from across Africa, the Middle East, and the Far East, some of whom had been traveling for months to get to the shores of Libya and to embark on this final journey. Word of Italian government policy and European attitudes to what was happening undoubtedly filtered back. The advantages this gave the smugglers were considerable, not least because the greater the demand, the higher the prices they could charge, and the more people they could pack onto their boats. The stories of the behavior of the smugglers obviously also came with the migrants, some of whom had paid up to 4,000 euros for the crossing alone. But the bargain was rarely straightforward. Rape was commonplace, especially of women, whether accompanied or not. Many migrants made it to Libya only for more money to be demanded from them than they had already paid. Possessions were seized. Some migrants told of the smugglers using a migrant's mobile phone to video their abuse and torture. The video was then sent to the migrant's family with a threat of further torture unless they sent more money. The officials who process the migrants once they arrive in Italy get to know where the traffickers' safe houses are, but next to nothing can be done inside Libya to punish the gangs. Although the world sees all these people as migrants or refugees, between and among themselves they are very different people, with different backgrounds, and all with different reasons for finding themselves on the same journey. One demonstration of this is the hierarchy that exists among the migrants even once they are on the boats. Racism between and among the, the migrant root groups is routine. For instance, Tunisians and Syrians look down disapprovingly on the sub-Saharan Africans, and not only metaphorically. When the boats set out, the best places in the vessel, at the front and on the deck, are occupied by these better-off groups from the Middle East and North Africa. The Eritreans, Somalis, and others sit or stand in the hold of the boat. And if the boat goes down, it is these people most likely to perish. During the summer of 2015 on Lampedusa, I got speaking to two Eritreans in their late teens or early 20s, sitting in silence on the edge of the harbor, picking at, the feet, at their feet and looking back over the sea they had crossed. While huge naval vessels scoured the horizon beyond, the two showed me the boat, sitting between the two Italian government vessels in the harbor that they had arrived on the previous week. It was, among the battered old boats that set out from Libya, comparatively seaworthy, it had been spotted by the Coast Guards and escorted into the harbor by a helicopter with accompanying rescue boats. The two Eritreans had traveled at the lowest point, in the dark hold of the boat, but it had stayed afloat and so they had stayed alive. The NGO workers who are tasked with getting the people off these rickety boats in the middle of the sea have terrible stories to tell. When a boat is spotted at any time of the day or night and workers are not on an official vessel, they have an hour or two at most to get down to the harbor. 
One worker says that when the migrants board the naval vessel at sea or the harbor on land, they are told, you're in Italy. Then the workers reassure them that they are safe. Again, apart from the Eritreans, most people are very happy and smile. In the countries they, are, they come from, people are suspicious of officials, and especially the police. So for third parties to reassure the migrants that here in Europe the police and officials will actually work for them is a very important reassurance. One NGO worker relates that the first thing she says to the migrants when they got onto the naval vessel in the middle of the sea or into the dock at Lampedusa is simply, Welcome to Europe. After what the migrants have been through even before the treacherous crossing from North Africa, it is hardly surprising that many of them will arrive at Lampedusa exhausted and traumatized. Some will have lost a family member on the journey. Yet they still come, knowing the risks, because for all the stories of sinking boats and deaths on board, most of those who set out will stay afloat, reaching Italian waters, and once there, become European citizens. Whether they are fleeing political, religious, or sectarian persecution, or whether they are after a better life in a developed world, all will claim asylum. Many will have legitimate claims, and Italy has a duty to give these people asylum. Under the Geneva Conventions and the EU-Dublin Treaty, the first country into which a migrant enters and claims asylum is the country that must assess the claim and offer protection. But the bitter truth is that there is almost no way to find out who is who or what is true. If the flow of applicants was not at the levels it has been for years, then the fingerprinting, interviews, and everything else that follows could be carefully assessed. Backstories could be cross-checked and followed up on. But with the arrivals coming at this speed and in these numbers, there was never any chance of this. Two other elements make all of this far worse. Many, and sometimes most, of the people arriving de deliberately bring no paperwork, them with paperwork with them because being unidentified is an advantage. Amid the demands on the time of the agencies, people can pretend to be other ages or, people or other people or even from another country. When it became known that a particular group were being put to the front of the asylum queue, Syrians, for instance, then a large number of people would claim to be Syrians, even though some of those working with the refugees noticed they were neither speaking any Syrian dialect nor knew anything about the country they claimed to be from. This phenomenon is at least partly caused by NGOs that advocate for any and all migration into Europe as part of the borderless world movement. As the flow of migrants grew in the 2010s, some NGO groups decided to help migrants before they even got to Europe. They provided easily accessible information on the web and on phone apps to guide would-be Europeans through the process. This included advice on where to go and what to say once there. Frontline workers noticed that as time goes on, the awareness of the migrants about what will happen to them and what they should expect becomes ever clearer. In part, this is the result of word filtering back to their countries of origin from people who have successfully made the journey. But it is also because a movement exists that seeks to teach migrants how to stay in Europe, whatever the justice of their application. All these groups are correct in their assumption that in the 21st century, Italy has neither the money, the time, nor the will to go painstakingly through every single application. Of course, there are people who are refused asylum, at which point they could appeal the decision. But even if their appeal is turned down, it is rare for anything further to happen. It is rare to find any cases of someone arriving in Italy, being refused the right to remain, and then actually being sent back to their home country. Very occasionally, someone who has been convicted of a crime in Italy is repatriated. 
but even then the bar is set exceptionally high. It is easier to let everyone dissolve into Italy and then into Europe than it is to hold the line of the law. The truth is that once you survive Lampedusa's waters, you are in Europe for good. Of course, even those who may be lying about asylum are looking for an indefinitely better life than the one they have left behind. From Lampedusa, it seems easy to imagine schemes to distribute this vast and continual wave of people equitably and harmoniously across the continent. But anybody who knows even just Italy should know better than this. Aside from the tiny numbers of earlier and better-off migrants, most people who arrive will eventually find themselves sleeping outside the train station in Milan or in a car park in Ravenna. The lucky ones will end up working for gangs or trying to sell imitation luxury goods on the bridges of Venice or down the side streets of Naples. Whenever they see a policeman or the flash of a police car's lights, they will hurriedly gather up their counterfeit bags or wheel away the tray of imitation sunglasses and hurry from the scene. They, more, they may be more protected, free, and safe than they were in their home country, but their future can hardly be said to be bright. And Lampedusa is only one small island. During recent years, boats full of migrants have also come ashore on the islands nearest to Lampedusa, including Malta and Sicily. In 2014 alone, the year before the migrant crisis began, 170,000 people arrived this way. Officials talk of solving the problem by filling Libya's recent government vacuum. But they forget that the flow of migrants continued even during the period when European governments, including the French, were paying bribes to Gaddafi. And they forget that the boats do not only head out from Libya, but also launch from Egypt, Tunisia, and Algeria. What is more, this is in any case only one route. Over to the west of the Mediterranean is, an entirely route, is another route entirely, going from, up from Morocco and into Spain. Migrants have flowed across this narrowest gap between Africa and Europe, the Straits of Gibraltar, for decades, probably centuries, maybe millennia. Despite Morocco having the best relations of any North African government with any European country, and therefore the best chance of doing deals to stop the smugglers, the migration to Spain has not been stopped. Indeed, during the early 1990s, the movement of migrants through this route proved to be the harbinger of what was to come. In those days, the going rate for the people smugglers to traverse 10 miles of sea was $600. Now, then, as now, boats set off on a daily basis, and the bodies of those who didn't make it often because the smugglers make migrants swim the last portion of the journey, wash up on the beaches of Spain. Then, as now, the movement was not only continuous but diverse. One report from 1992 documented that of 1547 illegal migrants detained by the Spanish authorities in Tarifa alone over a 10-month period, there were 258 Ethiopians, 192 Liberians, and 64 Somalis. As the report observed, word of a new route had spread far beyond Morocco, not with not only Algerians and growing numbers of sub-Saharan Africans, but also Filipinos, Chinese, and even the occasional Eastern Europeans among those detained. Among those who were fleeing, some were escaping oppression, while others were simply looking for work or a better quality of life. As Santiago Varela, Spain's then Deputy Interior Minister, said, quote, In North Africa, there is a structural problem. We don't know how its political and economic situation will develop, and the demographic pressure is enormous. He was referring to a situation in which even then, 70% of the Morocco population was under the age of 30 and official unemployment figures sat at 17.5%. 
Varela continued, You can't yet compare our problem with that of other European countries, but it's a warning of what can happen here in the future. Spain has passed very quickly from being a land of emigration to one of immigration. End quote. Varela was speaking after a period in which North Africans who had previously headed toward France and Belgium were instead looking to find jobs in Italy and Spain at a time when neither country required visas. The migrants could enter the country as tourists and then travel on to the rest of Europe. And the part of the pull factor was then, even then was Europe's commitment to lower the internal borders between countries, making free movement easy once anyone was in Europe. In the 1990s, efforts to clamp down on illegal entries were hampered by Morocco's refusal to take back any non-Moroccans who had left the country. Thus, as one Spanish official noted, even if the government did manage to deter boats in his region, quote, they'll find other ways of getting in. They'll use bigger boats and land away from here. They'll try Italy or Portugal. While there's so much misery over there, they'll keep coming over here, end quote. Although efforts to stem the flow of migrants has been more successful in Spain than in Italy or Greece, the flow still continues today. In the 2010s, it is concentrated on the Spanish North African enclaves of Melilla, 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 and Cueta, which remain tantalizing positions for anyone seeking to make their way into Europe. Regular efforts by migrants to break down the fences and walls surrounding the enclaves mean clashes with police and frequent unrest. At the same time, and powerful through the pressures of those enclaves remained, the migrant boats still continue to head for the Spanish mainland or tiny pieces of territory like the islet of Albaran. In December 2014, in bad seas, one boat of more than 50 sub-Saharan Africans headed off from near Nador in northern Morocco to the southern coast of Spain. The Cameroonian Muslim captain blamed the bad weather on a Nigerian pastor who was praying on board. The captain and crew beat the pastor and threw him overboard before searching the other passengers, identifying the Christians, then beating and throwing them overboard in the same manner. This is only one more major route, one that has existed for years and where once again nothing is new but the scale. It was to this other side of the Mediterranean that the world's attention turned in the crucial year of the crisis. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.